I'm Olympic and world champion diver, Laura Wilkinson, and this is the Pursuit of Gold podcast. Each week, we are unlocking the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual tools that help athletes reach their biggest goals in sports. Today's guest is the founder of Mindset Training Institute and host of the podcast, The Mindset Experience, the official podcast of The Hidden Opponent. Armand Tagazada, maybe better known to us as Dr. T, is a Johns Hopkins trained, board certified adult, child, and adolescent psychiatrist, also specializing in sports psychiatry. Dr. T graduated magna cum laude from James Madison University, where he was awarded a varsity letter every year on the NCAA Division I wrestling team. He then received his MD from the University of Maryland School of Medicine. He completed both his adult residency and child and adolescent fellowship at John Hopkins Hospital, where he was elected chief resident. Baltimore Magazine has selected him as top doctor every single year since 2016. He's also the medical director for The Hidden Opponent, a top mental health nonprofit recognized as a standout resource for athletes by Kobe Bryant. Given his personal athletic success, medical knowledge, and extensive clinical experience, Dr. T works closely with elite athletes and coaches to improve performance by identifying emotional barriers to success, managing psychological factors related to setbacks, teaching mental skills training, and developing a competitive mindset. Well, if you think Dr. T sounds impressive by his bio, which I do... Just wait until you listen to this conversation. He is super relatable. He's easy to talk to and understand and drops truth bombs in almost every single sentence. This is an episode you're going to want to download and listen to again and again. In this episode with Dr. T, we are talking all about mindset and becoming a confident competitor begins and ends with your mindset, not your parents' mindset, not your coach's mindset, not your team's mindset, your mindset. Your attitude, perspective, and responses come from you and you alone. I created the Confidence Journal to remind you daily of where you're going, and it will teach you the attitude you need to get there. Each and every day, you'll learn lessons that will move you closer to achieving your biggest goals, all while growing your confidence during the pursuit. And all of these lessons, they come from you. Through simple guided journaling, your focus and thought process will begin to shift. You'll start to recognize shortcomings and triumphs, what needs improvement, and even pride in what you've accomplished. The Confidence Journal will begin to show you the beauty of your journey and just how tangible your goals really are. This journal is designed to be super quick, but profoundly effective. Just a few minutes in the morning and a few at night is all you need to change the way you think, process, and face your life's biggest challenges. Through the end of March, you can snag 25% off an autograph copy with coupon code TOPDOC at checkout. Visit laurawilkinson.com slash books to grab yours. That's laurawilkinson.com slash books, coupon code TOPDOC. Before we get started, make sure to smash that subscribe button and give Pursuit of Gold a five-star review. And please tell your friends about this podcast, share your favorite episodes so that we can continue to improve and grow to that next level bringing you more resources, tools, and inspiration. All right, I believe there's gold in your future, so let's dive on into this episode. Dr. T, welcome to the Pursuit of Gold podcast. I'm really excited to dig into like my favorite topic with you, mindset. Thank you for having me. I'm really, really blessed to be on here. I've seen the list that you've had and, and some of the, the folks you've had on with your people. I look up to it. I'm excited to even be on this platform. It's exciting for me, so thank you. Oh, of course. We had such a great conversation on your podcast, The Mindset Experience. So I'm really excited to kind of turn the tables on you. 
put you in the hot seat this time around, but I would love to start with you kind of telling us your background on your experience as an athlete growing up. Growing up, I was a very athletic kid. I was involved in a bunch of different sports. I loved playing sports. I was really active. So like tennis, swimming, football at some point was something I got really, really interested in. But I was always a smaller, undersized kid. I've always been kind of the smallest kid, if you will. And wrestling was something that I found in sixth grade, found success with it early on. And because I was such a small kid, I was 60 pounds in sixth grade. Oh my goodness. They didn't have a 60 pounder on the team. And they said, listen, would you consider wrestling you know, on our team? Like we don't have anybody. And I was like, yeah, sure. Like I'm physical. I like tackling people. (laughs) And that's how I started and didn't really know much about it. And just really like it was hard and it was difficult, but I really, I fell in love with it. I fell in love with how hard it was. I fell in love with how challenging it was. I found some success early on, but it was also something that like, as you know, when you're sort of in these individual sports, your ability to like put in the effort and work, like you're very accountable to yourself. And and I think there's something very pure about that. And when people teach you things and you do them and you see that they're working, like that kind of fuels you and you're more motivated and it's exciting. So that's kind of how it started, but I continue to play other sports and was still really, really interested in football. I played baseball and and I played football in high school. Actually, I was the smallest kid on the team. I was actually the captain of my freshman football team. Really? Didn't play a single snap because the coach thought I was too small, but because I was such a hard worker and I would literally play everybody out and practice, the team thought I deserved to play and they voted me captain, which was a really incredible wow. thing to come out, do the coin toss, shake hands, and then be put on the bench. You're like Rudy, right? So it's, it's funny because I had Rudy on my podcast. Did you really? I did. And I was explaining to him. I'm like, when I saw your story, I was like, that's me. But I was never afraid to put myself in those chances. And so even sophomore year, I played football again and I made the team. I made the higher level team. Didn't play until the end of the season when finally somebody was injured and the coach is looking around. I'm like, coach, down here, down here, look at me, put me in, like, give me a chance. And I got in and I made all these tackles and we ended up, I played the rest of the season. We won the championship. And I realized at that point, like my football career was really going to stall out. Like it wasn't going to further, but my wrestling career really had an opportunity. And so I use that limitation, if you will, as a consideration, really invested in wrestling, became an All-American in high school, had the opportunity to wrestle at the division one level. And, you know, and I've had a variety of different experiences through sport that have really gone well beyond just the wins and the losses and the stuff on the mat. And it's translated over into other things in my life. So that's sort of how I got into it. The other thing that I think it's worth noting is that my parents, particularly my mom, was so anti-wrestling. She came to one match in seventh grade, said, I'm never coming back. I can't watch this. This is too difficult for a mother. So Wait, but she was okay with football? She wasn't okay with football, <laughs> but like I think wrestling is a tough sport for a mom to watch. Like to see your kid in these really uncomfortable positions and like their arm is being twisted and manipulated. It's just, it's tough, right? And, you know, I think at least football, you can kind of separate yourself up. You understand that it's a difficult game. It's a physical game, but it's sort of hard to like focus on one person and, and them constantly being beaten up, if you will, even if they're winning for those six or seven minutes. But all throughout high school, college, she never came to a single match the rest of our lives. And people were like, wow, your kids are really good. You should consider watching them. And she just didn't want to watch it. It was too hard to watch. So my mom's not that different because she would come to the diving meets, but then she just would cover her eyes and then ask if it was good afterward. Like, so she was there, but she couldn't watch either. So I convinced her to open her eyes one time and I ate it so hard. And she's like, I'm never watching you again. (laughs) So you can appreciate it. It's like that struggle of like wanting to support your kids but also like being so protective as a parent 
And I think some of these sports are just really, really hard. But yeah, I mean, that's kind of how my entry into sports was. And, and I found the ability to take my love of athletics, my love of being physical, my love of working hard and put it into a sport where not only besides not a challenge, it was sort of even the playing field, if you will, and found a lot of success with it. And it led to so many other things and helped me in so many other ways. Were you always kind of into the mental side of things? Like what led you into psychiatry and mental training and that kind of thing? Because obviously, you know, you sound like you loved that kind of part of actual wrestling and everything else. Like what led you into that career move? Yeah, I think there was a couple of things. I mean, one was, and, and to be fair, my father was a psychiatrist, so I had some experience and exposure. That being said, I wanted nothing to do with the field because when I would go to his office, I'd see a bunch of toys. He worked with kids. I'd see a bunch of toys. And I was like, what is like, what kind of job do you have? Like you play <laughs> games with kids all day. And he's like, what's well, a lot more than that? Like we play games, they open up, we talk about stuff. I'm like, this is not a real job. This is not, you're not a real doctor. So <laughs> I sort of had this skewed perception of it. And it was later on when I sort of started dabbling in the field and getting some experience because he could help me get a job, frankly, that I started to hear people talk about him in a way of how he had shaped their lives and transformed their lives. And that was fascinating to me because he had built relationships with people and they were willing to listen to the older Dr. T when they wouldn't listen to anybody else. And he was able to connect with them in a way that other people couldn't. And I was like, wow, that's fascinating to be able to do that. So that really interested me to some extent. But, you know, as far as within wrestling myself, I think I understood how important the mental aspect was, but I didn't know what to do about it. And frankly, it got in my way, right? I was a kid that in practice was a hard worker and I would do really, really great things. And I would beat people that were quote unquote better than me. But in matches, I would oftentimes freeze up, right? Or I would oftentimes wrestle. And even if I won, I was just physically and emotionally exhausted and I wouldn't necessarily put on my best performance. And I knew something was different. Like I knew like I wasn't the best version of myself, but I didn't know what to do about it. So I just worked harder. Like I just worked harder and I would get myself so pumped up before matches that like I'm running around, I'm smacking myself in the face. Like I looked really, really intimidating, but I would come out and then I'm like exhausted. And now I'm like gritting it through the six minute match because I've worked myself up to get so hype thinking that that's going to help me. And so I knew I wasn't doing it the most effective and efficient way. And even when I got to college, my coach was like, look, I don't get it. Like in the practice room, you're like an animal, you're a beast on the mat. You're great, but like not what you could be. And I was like, yeah, coach, I don't know what it is. I think I knew there was some anxiety there. I just didn't want to use that word. And I knew there was some kind of mental barrier. I just didn't know what to do. And there weren't a ton of resources and it wasn't talked about in a way that was like action oriented. It was more like, well, if you have a problem, right? If you're struggling, like we have a psychologist on campus. And nobody wants to admit they're struggling, right? Yeah. yeah. I was like, I'm not struggling. I need to get better. Like I'm great. I need to get, be exceptional. Like that's not a struggle for me. So like, why would I go talk to you? And admittedly too, I think in the field at that time, there weren't a lot of people that truly understood sport. There weren't a lot of former athletes that went into the mental health field. And so again, it's one thing to sort of understand psychology in the brain. It's another thing to truly understand the grit and the determination and the work ethic and the discipline and the sacrifice that comes with really trying to be an elite athlete. So that relatability, I think, was something that was lacking. So fast forward, I always wanted to be a teacher and a coach. I always wanted to be a teacher and a coach. That was my quote unquote childhood dream. What do you want to be when you grow up? My mother discouraged it. She said, look, you're not going to make enough money. They work really hard. They don't get the respect that they deserve. It's a very difficult life. You're just always going to be worried about like finances and what you want to do. And 
And I was like, yeah, but that's what I want to do. Like, why do I worry about it? And she said, why don't you become a doctor? I was like, I don't want to be a doctor. Why don't you become a dentist? I'm like, that's the last thing I want to do. Why don't so we went through all of this stuff. And again, as I got more experience and exposure to what my dad did, and I was somewhat strongly encouraged by my parents to consider medical school, I said, look, let me apply and let me see what happens. And I was interested in psychology. I was a psychology major. I took my pre-med courses. I took a year off after college. I was a teacher and a coach. And I kind of got that out of my system a little bit. And I said, you know what? Like, this is great, but let me see what else is there. And so I was fortunate enough to get into medical school. As I went through medical school, I was really open to different things. But psychiatry, what I really loved about it was, again, the ability to connect with people, build relationships, and have ongoing collaboration. It wasn't like you fix something, it's over, you high five, and it's over. Like, And to some extent, I appreciate that about sport. But with sport, we know even when you win your competition or your competition is is over, you go back to training. Like you train with your teammates, you train with your coaches. And when we really, really look at it, that's the most meaningful piece, right? It's the relationships that get built over time. The competitions and the challenges are just sort of little benchmarks that are part of it. But like when we really look at it, the meaningful experience is all the other stuff. And that's what really, really drew me in. And that's what really drew me in about my college wrestling experience was my friendships with these guys, my relationships with these people, my relationships with some of my coaches in my life. That's what I loved about the sport, not necessarily the wins and the losses. So it was one of the few fields in medicine that I think lent itself to that. To be 100% honest, I didn't love the persona that the mental health field gave off. I felt like it was a little bit quirky, a little bit esoteric. I felt like a lot of the providers in the mental health field like didn't quite truly understand how to connect with people, right? Which is interesting. And again, I think the stigma, we use that word a lot, I think to some extent is perpetuated by the mental health field itself. So I thought about that and I said, look, these are people that I would like want to hang out with. And then I kind of came back to, well, if you want to go into a profession for people you want to hang out with, you shouldn't go into medicine at all because those aren't your people, right? Like your people are going to become coaches and teachers So you sort of have to decide, are you going into a profession because you want best friends? Are you going into a profession because you believe in what you're doing? And I sort of came to this conclusion that I was going to go into this profession and I was going to do it my way. And I was going to sort of redefine, if you will, and revolutionize the field in a way of providing a service to people where they feel connected, they feel understood, they feel like they can actually open up and do it in a way that's not weird or different. And the athletic population drew me in obviously because of my background and my passion for coaching. And I thought, you know what, this is the population that I really want to focus on because I think that when it comes to mental health, they're underserved and they're not necessarily willing to recognize if there's a problem. People even in their life can't recognize if there's a problem. And if they do, they just say, hey, work harder, push harder, get back on the block, like get back on the climb up the 10 meters again, and like just do it again um, or get back on the mat. And it's like, as we both know, you can do those things over and over again, but they're not going to address what's up here in your mind. And if I have the ability to take my athletic background, my medical knowledge, my mental health experience and combine those, like how cool is that? Right. And so that's ultimately how I got to where I am. I love it. And I love that you're redefining it on your own terms. And I, I mean, I loved everything that we have talked about in our conversations. I'm I feel like you're just spot on. And so it is very relatable and you are connecting in the right ways. Obviously you're making a big impact with lots of athletes and coaches and parents and everything. Something I really want to dive into a little bit because you have mentioned mental health several times and in the field of psychiatry, you know, it's more than just an athlete mindset. So can you walk us through what's the difference from your perspective between mental health, 
and mindset. I think it's important, right? To like, we say these terms a lot and then we don't really define them. Yeah. And I think people just throw them out willy nilly and nobody's on the same page with what they actually mean. We're all speaking different languages, right? And then we don't understand why we can't understand each other, right? (laughs) Right. And then we get frustrated because we can't understand each other. But like, if we can't get on a common language and a common page, how are we going to end up understanding each other and even breaking the stigma, right? Like, how can we do that if we can't understand it? So I appreciate the question. The way that I think about it, I sort of think about mental health as sort of a little bit more of an umbrella, right? And I think there's a lot of things that kind of go under mental health. One piece of that being mindset. So I think, you know, mindset to me is really looking at the role that your brain plays in what you do, right? And and also understanding the interaction between our thoughts and our emotions and our emotions and our actions and our actions and our thoughts, right? And really understanding the interplay of that and how important that is. And then being able to truly understand that, understand some of the background and the science of that, and then being able to implement action-oriented things that we can do to be able to reduce our anxiety, improve our confidence, ultimately optimize our performance. So that's kind of how I think of mindset, if you will. But I think that mindset is a big part of mental health because I think that when we understand how we think and we understand how our brain works and we understand how that the interplay of our thoughts and our emotions, and we understand how our actions kind of play into that, then we gain confidence. Inevitably, we gain confidence because we understand it and we understand then how can we do certain things to be able to feel better, not only just in situations when we're struggling, but even ahead of time. So that I think is a big, big piece. And it's a big step in terms of helping optimize your mental health. But I think mental health in general also includes treatment for or getting support for other sort of mental health vulnerabilities like depression, like anxiety, like bipolar disorder, some of those things. So I think that's a big part of it. I also think that like sleep, nutrition, exercise are a part of mental health, right? Like I think that we think of mental health as sort of, and this is where I think the language piece comes in is we sort of think about it like addressing it when you're struggling. There's all these preventative things that we could do to be able to optimize our mental health in terms of sleep, in terms of nutrition, in terms of exercise, in terms of really investing in things that are important, like our family, our friends, those kind of things, and investing in mindset training that I think would ultimately minimize the risk of sort of struggling. And even if you are, allow you to be in a place where you can access support much better and even respond to support better. I think that is an absolutely phenomenal breakdown. I think I love the way you explained it. And something I really want to get on because that was kind of one of my questions you already touched on is the role that like nutrition and sleep and taking care of yourself plays in mental health in this world, in this culture, society of instant gratification where, Hey, just give me a pill and it'll fix it. Like, how do you talk to people about taking care of yourself and explaining and and helping them not just explaining it, but like in a way that they will understand like how important it is to take those steps to prevent or to like not have like go down these bad rabbit holes of mental health if you just take care of yourself better. It's amazing to me how basic it is and how little we seem to do it or know how to do it. So, right. I think that you just hit it, right? It's that we don't necessarily know how to do it or we even don't quite understand it. So the way that I do it is I start with physical health because I think that particularly athletes, but even non-athletes, if you will, can understand the concept of physical health, right? Like we know that and we can admit that sleep is important for us to be able to be alert, awake, and and energetic the next day. We know that nutrition is important to be able to fuel our body, be able to have the energy to do the things that we want to do, whether it's workout, whether it's get through a long work day, whether it's, you know, whatever it is. We we can admit understand that. We understand the role that exercise has, right, in terms of helping us 
build muscle, increase energy, you know, and also prevent injuries and illness, right? We understand that stretching is important to allow us to stay flexible and prevent injuries, right? Prevent us from pulling something or tearing something. So we can look at all those things and we understand those in the context of why they're so necessary, not only to help us optimize our performance, but to prevent injury or illness. Then I kind of take that over to mental health and say, so listen, the most important muscle in your body is your brain. Because your brain controls all that stuff. Like you could be in the best shape of your life, but if your brain is not working or it's not working well, it's not going to even be able to signal to your muscles to be able to do what they need to do in the way that they need to do it. Even if your, you know, your nutrition is spot on and everything else is spot on and your brain is questioning what to do and you're doubting yourself and you're stuck in that position, like how are you going to be able to do what you need to do? Right. And so I sort of them help them understand that like confidence, concentration, staying composed, all of those things, like those are mental quote unquote skills. And if we can think of mental health as a way of optimizing those things, like we do the other ones, then we are more likely to be able to prevent things from happening that get in our way, but also being able to optimize things working out in our favor. So that's sort of, I start with physical health, if you will, because I think that's a concept that is more practical that people can understand. And then I sort of from there say, well, if we're thinking about physical health this way, like why would we think about mental health as like, why wait until you're like, you don't wait until you're injured to start like exercising, right? In fact, that's when you rest. (laughs) So why would we wait until we're struggling to be able to like tap into our mind and the capability that it has? And I think at that point they start to understand, wow, like I've never thought about it that way. Like I think go see somebody when you're struggling, but, or go get help when you're struggling, but. I see a personal trainer before I'm injured, right? Or I see my physical therapist to be able to help with this. Like I work with a nutritionist or whatever to be able to like, be able to perform at my best. And so I think that's a big thing that we still, I think, have a long way to go on is really how we define and conceptualize mental health versus physical health. I love that. I think that's really smart, especially coming out of the pandemic. And so, I mean, so many people were messed up after the pandemic. I mean, being locked down, especially young kids, like completely taken out of their social situations. And that's like when you find out who you are and how you discover how you interact with the world. And that was just taken from them. So I know a lot of, especially young athletes and people coming up are really struggling with those things. So I think for them, if nothing else, start with the physical health, because that will help your mental health in the long run as well. Do you have any anything specific for people who are still struggling post I mean, we're at almost the three-year mark now since like the world shut down and everything that we knew changed and people are still really struggling. Like, do you have any, any words of wisdom for those people? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess one kind of cliche term is you're not alone, right? Because I think multiple people are struggling. And I think in some ways, a lot of us are in different ways, but I think what happens a lot is that when things get complicated and we feel overwhelmed, we tend to overcomplicate things too, right? So we think about all these things and all these things that we've lost or we've missed, or why didn't I do this? Or why didn't I do this? Or I should have done this. And and again, we really start to panic and that creates you know a larger sense of anxiety that causes us to get overwhelmed. And so I think really simplifying is important, really, really simplifying it. So I think you know one thing that I do and that I teach is really breaking it down and sort of identifying three areas of focus each day. If you're a student athlete, right? Like one area would be school, one area would be your sport, and one area would be yourself. And think about each day, what am I going to do for each of those things? Just one thing. And if you do just one thing, like in school might be, you know, I'm going to work on that paper, I'm going to meet with that teacher, you know, but if you're really struggling, school might be, I'm going to go to class today. 
Like, I'm just going to go to class, right? Your sport might be, again, I'm going to work on this extra thing or I'm going to put this extra effort in. It might be, I'm just going to go to practice. And yourself might be, you know, I'm going to connect with friends. I'm going to read this book that I've been really wanting to. I'm going to take a bath today, but school or yourself might just be, I'm going to get out of bed today, right? Depending on what level that is. But still, if you focus on three areas of focus, you're really simplifying things. You're directing your attention to those things. And then you've accomplished three things that day. And if at the end of the week, you've accomplished 21 things at the end of the month, that's like 90 or 93 things, right? Depending on the month. So I think simplifying and really looking at that and identifying it and even writing it down, which facilitates the brain's learning process and engages the brain in different ways, starts to build those synapses and those connections. And again, starts to build that confidence. And when you start to then have that confidence, it's like, okay, what more can I do? What more can I do? And, and that would be one of many things that people could do. Okay. I just have to pause you right there because I feel like that was the perfect advertisement for a journal I created last year (laughs) called the Confidence Journal. And it literally, it's just simplifying your day. It's making like three goals for the day, you know, things you're grateful for. And you take a win from every day, even if it was a horrible day, like you learn a lesson from it and there was a win inside of it. It's like, it's so simple. And I, but I feel like that's the way I process things is I just make things really, really simple. I break it down to where it almost feels too easy, but that's how you keep moving forward. Right. And that's how you keep doing it. Cause if it's too complicated, sometimes we just like, I, I just shut down. If it's too much, like if I have a million things on my to-do plate and I know I can't get through it, I'm just like, Nope, I'm not doing any of it. And I'll just shut down. But if I have three, I know I can nail those. I know I can get that done for sure. There's two important parts of that, right? One is there's the beauty and the simplicity, right? Like one of the biggest compliments I've ever had. And it was so funny. I gave a presentation to like a team and a program and this mom came up. She goes, Dr. T, that was great. She goes, no offense though, but like, that's really basic. And I'm like, yeah. She goes, I mean, what you said is very simple. I'm like, yeah. And she goes, no disrespect. I'm like, I don't take that as disrespect. (laughs) That's a huge compliment because we complicate things. And so if I can simplify it and your athlete can understand it and utilize it, That makes the biggest thing, right? So that's one thing. But the other thing that's important is you said that you identify three things too. And that's an important number that people don't quite understand, right? Our brains prefer to chunk things in chunks of three to five, right? It's called chunking is the term, but it helps facilitate learning. So the example I always give teams when I do this is I ask somebody, I say, hey, give me your phone number. What's your phone number? And they say their phone number. And inevitably they chunk it into three digits, then three digits, and then four digits, right? And so I sort of explained then, like, did everybody notice the way they chunk their phone number? And they're like, yeah, three, three, four. And I'm like, the brain loves to learn in chunks of three to five. It prefers to learn in chunks of three to five. So I think the ability to simplify to three things is not only simple, but it also goes within the brain's learning process. So your brain gets excited because it knows what to do. It's like, I know how to do that. Like, I know that skill. So then it gets excited. It releases certain chemicals like dopamine and serotonin, which help facilitate motivation and effort and energy. So all of a sudden you're more likely to do them because you've integrated it within your brain's learning process. And so there's so many layers to it that people quite don't understand. And I think sometimes we're like, do this, do this. And people are like, what do you mean? I tried it. It doesn't work. But when you really understand like that number three, there's something special about doing it that way. And it's attainable and it's actionable. And it's not overwhelming. Like when you have 12 or 13 things or whatever, that's like a big to-do list that nobody wants to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So that's important too. So I just kind of, based on what you said, I wanted to highlight that because there is something to the way that you're doing it that whether you realize it or not is very, very impactful and integral to the way our brains learn. 
I feel like every time I talk to you, you're explaining why the things I keep doing are working. So <laughs> I don't get that part of it. So I love hearing like the science behind it. So thank you for making me understand that I'm doing something right for a reason. <laughs> you're doing a lot right. You're doing a lot right. <laughs> That's so funny. Well, when you talk to athletes in general, is there kind of a very common issue that a lot of people deal with? Because what I found is, you know, I talk to kids anywhere from 10 and I've got a 74 year old master's athlete. Like I've got the whole gambit, you know, pros and newbies and everything, but everybody tends to have these same surfacing issues. They just present differently depending on where they are at in their career. So I'm really interested on like, what are some of the hot issues, the common issues that, that your athletes deal with, that you help them deal with? One very, very common issue that comes up is performance anxiety. And I use that generally, but sort of this anxiety about performing at their best, right? Another common issue that kind of goes into that is this fear of failure, like fear of letting yourself down, letting other people down. I think that's another common thing. I think the other thing that we have that, again, is this doubt that like, even when we're in those moments and we feel confident, we go in there, like we start to get distracted and we start to doubt ourselves. So that's a pretty common thing as well that I think comes in. And these all, there's overlap within all of those. But those are, I think, three major, major issues that people come in with me. The other thing that I see, Tom, is that they don't know why they're coming to me. They just know that they're not where they want to be, right? Like they don't feel the way they want to feel or they're not playing the way that they want to play. And so ultimately their issue is I'm not playing well or I know I'm better than I actually perform. And then we sort of break it down and identify some of those kind of concepts. But those are the big ones. And I think confidence goes within all those, right? Like we talk about confidence as sort of this thing independently that we need to like find or fix. But I think the confidence, when you really look at it is really, you know, somebody said to me once he was an Olympic gold medalist in wrestling. And he said, confidence is built or destroyed every single day. And it's this idea. It's not like you either have it or you don't. Number one, you can build it. But the other thing is that even if you build it today, you could break it down tomorrow, but you could build it back up again. So I think that would, to me, was a really beautiful way of sort of understanding and explaining that we have this ability within us to grow it. And it's grown through doing some of the other things. But those are some big things that come up. No, those are great. And so if you're listening and if you've had any of those issues, know that you're not alone and you are completely normal and going through very normal things. And there are things that can be worked on and improved and changed for sure. Yeah. And I would even say this, not only are you not alone, that if you're the higher level athlete you are, the more likely you are to have those things. Because like, these are human experiences. Like we all doubt ourselves. We're all afraid of failure. Like we all are in our lives. Like that's why we study so hard, like sometimes, or that's why like we're afraid to go see our teacher, right? You know, all of those things. And I think the further you get in life, whether it's in school or whether it's in athletics or whether it's in even your relationship, right? You know, you're a mom of four. Like I imagine the longer you've been doing this, the more you question yourselves at times. And there's certain things you're probably really confident about. And there's other things you're like, wait, did I do this right? Did I do this? Am I doing this? So I think not only is it normal, but it's typical and it's something that we all experience. And the more advanced we get in whatever we are, the more likely it is to happen. So instead of sort of hoping it doesn't happen or fighting it, it's really understanding and embracing that not only is this a part of my human experience, it's a part of my athletic experience. And let me actually learn how to navigate it instead of like hoping it doesn't happen or trying to get rid of it, frankly, because you're not going to get rid of something that is a part of your experience. Like you can't get rid of a family member short of doing something really stupid, right? <laughs> but you have to learn how to navigate and work within that context because they're a part of your family and fear, doubt, 
and anxiety are a part of our human experiences and a part of our athletic experiences. Yeah. And those struggles, when you don't run away from them, but you actually face them and deal with them, those are the very things that equip you to become the athlete that you want to be in the end, right? You have to go through those. If you just run away, you're guaranteeing you're never going to be the person you want to be. But if you deal with them and try, you most likely will be. Like, it's just kind of a funny thing that we seem to know, but we don't put it into action. I love what you're saying. And I think when we really look at it, if we really, really look at it, I think, and we're really honest at ourselves, like if we really look at that like metaphorical mirror, the thing that we're most afraid of, I think, is failing ourselves. It's sort of feeling like, wow, I'm not enough. Like I'm not enough. I'm not enough that what these people believe me or what these people think and what's going to happen, right? And if you keep showing up every day, like if you're so afraid of yourself, but you still get out of bed and you still go to practice, you've overcome that fear. Like you've already overcome it. So like really, I mean, it's easier said than done, but like what else is there to be afraid of? Like if you just get up and show up to practice every day, all those other fears are nothing in comparison to the fear of yourself. And you've already shown up, you've put yourself in that difficult situation. So I think that's an important thing to understand is every time you show up, you already are building that grit and that determination. You're showing that I could overcome this fear today. So what else can I do? For sure. I love it. What are some of the things that you talk to coaches about? Because obviously that's a bit different, you know, that these coaches are trying to help show these kids exactly what we're talking about. So what kind of advice do you have for coaches? I mean, there's two parts of it to it. I think one is helping coaches understand what mental health looks like, right? Because it's, while there's some common themes, it presents differently, right? Like everybody's experiences and their biology and their life history and the way they approach things and their behaviors, all of those things kind of impact the way we present, right? So part of it is helping them understand it. I think a lot of coaches, they don't have the knowledge or the education. And so it becomes really uncomfortable for them because like they don't want to deal with it, right? I think there's also a lot of older school coaches who look at like today's athlete is just not as tough. I mean, the reality is today's athlete in a lot of ways is probably tougher because they're managing so much more and navigating so much more and have more expectations and more pressures, but their brain development is the same, right? So like we're putting way more pressure on them and they're still showing up to practice. And even though they may look like they're decompensating or they're struggling, like they're managing way more than quote unquote yesterday's athletes. So helping them understand what that looks like, I think is very important because I think when you understand what it looks like, you at least know how to recognize it or approach it, or it's less uncomfortable. You're not expected to treat it, but you just have a basic knowledge. So the analogy I use with that is like, most coaches are expected to know CPR. You're not expected to save a life, but if somebody is down, you know to check their pulse, check their breathing, call 911. Like you know how to do that. And so if somebody goes down, you at least have a rudimentary knowledge of what to recognize that that person is struggling and what do we do? So giving almost like a mental health primer to help them recognize how to approach athletes, what is I think is super important. Language is important. Like I think that the language that we use, you know, is so, so critical, right? We convey our thoughts in terms of words and language. And so Helping coaches understand the appropriate language and when to use it and how that impacts an athlete is so important because they may say something intending one thing, but the athlete may be hearing it differently and processing it differently. And when you help educate them about if your goal is to win, which most coaches it is, then the best way to win is to have your athlete perform at their best. And the best way to help them perform at their best is to have them be the most confident and motivated and self-driven individual. And the best way to do that is to be able to understand how they think and speak to them in a language that's integral to them. So what does that look like? And helping them understand that, that's another thing that I do. And I think that there's, again, when we talk about mindset, there's certain things that coaches can integrate into training and practice that also then teach that athlete 
that that's an important part of it and helps them build that growth and that confidence in the context of it versus just focusing on the physical. And then when they're struggling, being like, well, you know, you need to see somebody or you need to do this. So giving them, again, some things that they can even teach, particularly the younger athletes to kind of make it an, an active part of that training process. One of the things that I've seen too, is that I think some of the best coaches out there are the ones that know all of their players or all of their athletes individually really well and how they operate. Like I have been so blessed to be under a coach for like 30 years. That is one of the best in the world. And he has exemplified all of these things that I've seen in the greatest coaches in the world. And he knows every single one of us on our own level. And he knows how to push our buttons differently, when to press in, when to back off, when to let us have space, when to let us fail, when to kick us in the butt to keep us going, when to be nice, you know, that takes quite a commitment from a coach, you know, to really invest in the athlete's life, not just showing up at practice and trying to get them through the skills or the techniques, but like these coaches have to really pour into these athletes. And it's, you know, kind of like what your mom was saying. It's this thankless job. Sometimes it's like parenting in a lot of ways. You're pouring your life into this child, wanting the best for them. And you only have them for the short amount of time too. So it's, it's a lot on coaches. And I just want to give a shout out to all the coaches listening right now, because we see you guys, you're amazing. Keep doing it. Like your athletes may not always say thank you, but you are changing their lives and we love you for it for sure. To your point, the other side of it is when you put that effort in on the front end and you truly understand your athlete, not only are they going to perform better, but you're going to save a lot of time on the back end. Like you're going to save a lot less time where you're trying to motivate them and trying to say like, well, what's wrong? Why is this happening? Like, and if you're putting that much effort in, like, don't you want to see the highest level of success for you and for them and have them be able to have the best experience, right? And if they have the best experience, they're going to be more successful, right? And I I don't mean to keep coming back to winning as the only gauge, but I think for some coaches that sort of look at it and say, look, I don't have time for all that. Nothing, but don't you want to win? Like you want these athletes to do anything they should be able to do to put in the work to win. If you put in a little bit of work up front and you understand that athlete and when to listen to them, when to speak to them, how to speak to them, what to say, if you truly understand that, you've now opened that athlete's world up where they have trust in you, they have determination with you, they will do anything for you and for themselves, and they're not afraid of disappointing you because they know that you understand them. So they're willing to now take those risks, right? You're going to get more out of them. You're also going to save yourself a ton of effort on the back end because you've created this system now that works. And so I think it's like anything else, like we can't expect results if we just go out there and do it and then say, well, I'll figure it out later. Like, well, no, we put in the work. We do the training stuff, right? When you couldn't dive because of your foot, you had to put in all this extra work and train yourself and go through all this. And so when you got up there, you were like, wait, I know what to do. Like I've been through all this, right? And I've seen all this. So yeah, it's a tremendous amount of work, but that work not only pays off, it pays off in so much more value. And so even when we invest all this time in our kids, think about you know, when they're doing well in school and they're not getting in trouble and they're building meaningful relationships and friendships and they get great opportunities and then they go on to do great things well after we're gone, wasn't that worth the effort? Like it was totally worth it. I would have put in way more effort, right? And so I think it's about how we look at things and really understanding that like, if we have this time, why not maximize the time we have? And if we maximize the time we have, we're going to maximize the results. And thinking about simple things, like when a coach is the one initiating the communication with an athlete, especially like one-on-one, -on -one, it helps the athlete then come back and communicate with them too. Because one of the biggest issues that I see too with some of the athletes I talk to is they don't talk to their coach. They don't know how to approach them. They, they can't tell. I'm like, have you talked to your coach about this? Have you discussed it? No. Can you? I don't know. <laughs> have you tried? You know, so like that feels like there's a barrier and, and they're so used to just 
taking the information and doing what they're told that a lot of times there's a big breakdown, especially with younger kids who are just very intimidated. So when the coaches open up that communication door, like you said, at the beginning on the front end, then the athlete's going to be more receptive to doing what they're told, but then also asking good questions, you know, and not wasting time. You know, they'll, they'll actually ask instead of just puts around like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. It's an absolutely great point, right? It really opens up, becomes a much more collaborative relationship and you give that athlete an opportunity and a privilege and frankly, the responsibility to say like, I'm giving this door open to you, like, and they're more willing to walk through it and they're more willing to actually take those chances. For sure. Now on to parents, because I know this is always a sticky one, you know, parents that, I mean, they want the best. We all want the best for our kids, but we're not our kids and our kids have to do these things. So where do you advise parents on like, you know, what their role is in, you know, encouraging and being there for their athlete, but then not being that parent that's like, you know, making it worse. (laughs) With parents, I talk a lot about language too, but about specifically what to say, what not to say and when to say it. So like one thing I tell parents all the time is parents are notorious for, you know, when their kid gets in the car on the way home from a competition or practice, they're notorious for saying, how was it? What happened? What do you think? Or they just tell them, hey, so on that dive, I saw you did this or on that play, I saw you did this. Here's the thing. When we're tired, when we're stressed, when we're anxious, our language center shuts down. We can't process language effectively. So for most people, the car ride home is probably the worst time to check in with your kid or to give them advice. So I tell them and I explain why, because your kid is tired, they're stressed. They may need to process it in their own way. They may need to figure it out. And honestly, if you give them that space in that time, they may actually figure it out. And a lot of times they know I should have done this. I could have done this. This is what went wrong. And so why not give them an opportunity, empower them, and then schedule a time that's convenient for them as well as for you when you can actually talk to them about the game or the performance, right? So that's one thing I start with. Can I ask how much time you would let go by? Like, are we talking... A day? Are we talking a week? I mean, you know, because there's kind of a fine line there as well, because you don't want your kid brooding for like three weeks over a stupid issue either. Totally. What kind of timeline? I don't even know if that's hard to nail down depending on your sport and your athlete and all those things. I think you have to know your athlete. I think you have to know your athlete. And I think the way we know our athlete is by asking them, right? So asking them, what's best for you? Like, so, you know, after a game or a meet or a competition, like, what do you need from me? And they may say like, they may say, look, I want to talk about it. I want to hear your opinion right in the car. They might be like, you know what? I just need a couple hours to like decompress. And then you sort of schedule and say, all right, so if you need a couple hours, I'd love to give you my feedback as well, or at least hear how I can support you. And you sort of figure it out. Maybe it's dinner time. Maybe it's like in the evening, like you sort of figure out that sweet spot. And if you give athletes the opportunity, even the younger ones, they'll sort of figure out what works best for them. And it's a little bit of trial and error. You're checking in with them about what's best for them. It's just sort of then figuring out when you have that conversation, right? So rather than just assuming, I'm not going to say anything. And then they're, you know, your poor athlete is brewing for three weeks and you're like, yeah, they're dis and J's, but I'm not going to. No, it's like figuring out and having that collaborative thing about like, when is a good time? And again, ahead of time, not right after the thing, but in advance, as you're talking with your athlete and you're figuring out how to best support them, figuring that out, number one, gives them the opportunity to know that you care about what they think and that they're the most important person, right? And so that opens it up a whole lot. They're already going to be more receptive. And then you sort of figure out what works best. And if they're like, I don't know, throw out a couple options like, and see what that is. I think that's important. The other important thing that I think is when you're talking with your athlete, a lot of times we we feel like we need to say what's on our mind because either we're going to forget it or they're not going to remember it. And like, take a step back, ask them what they think, what they saw, right? Like give them an opportunity because number one, you get a sense of where their head's at and what they were thinking. They might've had no clue. They might've not seen what you saw. 
which should be helpful. They might have actually seen it, but give you some perspective about what held them back. And they might have seen something you never saw that, well, I was going to do this, but then this guy came over from this position or whatever. And that's what, and be like, oh, I didn't even see that. Right. Like, as they're looking at it from a different viewpoint, right? So ask them and get some clarification, right? And and the other thing I talk to parents a lot about, it's called a listening statement. So it's about when they sort of say what they said, listen, show that you're listening and say, so it sounds like you're saying blah, 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 blah. Reflect back because that will number one, show them that you do understand. But it also give an opportunity that if you're way off base, they can say, no, mom, that's not at all what I said. Oh, tell me what you meant. I'm sorry, right? Like get an understanding, take a couple extra seconds to do the work up front because you'll have a much better sense. Then I think the important thing is when we want to give our advice, we know we're going to give it anyway, but there's a technique <laughs> There's a technique called ask, offer, ask. So what you do is first you ask, can I offer my perspective? They're going to say yes, right? Even if they roll their eyes, they're going to say yes, but at least you've given them a choice and you've empowered them to say, I care what you think. Then offer your perspective. Well, this is what I saw or this is what I think. And then ask them, what do you think about that? Or how does that sound to you? Or does that make sense? We oftentimes say, well, you should have done this on this, or I saw this, or you, why didn't you do this? And again, they're just going to shut down and they become more resistant. So we're putting all this effort in, but it's not really being received. And then we get frustrated when they don't do it because they're like, I told you all this stuff, but they're like, I don't even, I didn't even hear you say any of it. <laughs> so again, like listen, reflect, ask, offer, ask, and then sort of summarize and come up with a plan about how can I support you in this? Or instead of, okay, well, you need to go hit the wall again, or you need to go do more sprints. or you, you need to get back on the board and do 30 more of these reps. Like, no, ask them, what do you think? How can I support you in that? So I think if we do those things, it becomes a more collaborative relationship. The last point I'm going to bring about this, which I think is an important point is Helping parents understand the role they play is that, you know, lives, our lives are busy, right? We're busy. And so, yes, we take time off of work. Like we sacrifice money. We sacrifice all these things. But when we say those to kids, that doesn't motivate them. That actually makes them feel worse. And I can't tell you how many kids say, well, I'm afraid of disappointing my parent or I'm afraid of this, or they're just going to tell me that I didn't work hard enough and they spent all this money. Like that is not a appropriate way of motivating your kid in the long term. In the short term, yeah, you might get them to work a little bit harder, but like now are we creating a culture where they're just working because they're scared of you and that's not going to be sustainable. So one is understanding like we don't need to tell them those things. Like they get it. But the other thing is instead of focusing on the things we're giving up, like we have an opportunity to participate in our kids' development. Like how often can you actually take time to like spend a weekend off your email off your phone and like watch your kid do something really cool. Maybe it's something that you did in the past that you get to pass along. Maybe it's something that you didn't have an opportunity to do or frankly weren't good enough to do that now your kid is doing and you're giving them an opportunity. So like take pride in the opportunity to spend time, to stop, to be forced, if you will, to get off your phone or your email. And like, what else are you going to spend money on? Like, what's the most important thing to spend money on besides your kid? Like that's the biggest investment in your life. So like, why not invest in their growth, their happiness, and note that it goes well beyond a gold medal. It's their ability to take from sport and apply it to everything else. And if they come away with a positive experience that they've shared with you and they're like, wow, my mom and my dad were so supportive and I love those road trips and I love those weekends we went away and we laughed so much in these car rides, like that is gonna be way more valuable again than anything that they want. So understand it's not a responsibility you have as a parent. It's a privilege. And there are very few things in life where you actually have an excuse to shut off your work, to spend time with your family. And this is a good one. So take it. This is the parent mindset, right? Is that what we're going to call it now? The parent mindset. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> okay. Well, so these are like such great discussions. I love it. And I want to get into another one 
that, you know, it's just mental health and technology and social media and all of those things. And that it seeped into our culture, especially for our young kids. And I don't even think we knew what it was doing in the beginning when it just came out, you know, and the kids coming up now, I mean, they've grown up. There's always been iPhones or always been iPads. Like there always been these devices. It's different for us that like as the parents or the coaches to understand how they're processing different, but the amount of depression and the issues that are coming with social media. Like, can you touch on some of that? Like we have told our kids, like, you're not doing social media until you're like out of the house. Like, that's just not even, we're not doing it. We're not going there. I don't want you to go down that trap. So like, will you kind of address some of that for us? Yeah. I mean, I I think there's a couple layers to it. One is that, you know, technology has evolved, but brain development hasn't. So what's happening is when our brain is developing and growing, it's growing and developing at a certain pace. And so when we put a lot of social media and a lot of technology and social media, it's a fast technology, right? Like you're actively seeing things. It's actively reinforcing, it's gauging, but like our brain is not prepared to handle that load and that volume at certain ages. Right. And so the problem becomes is we're putting a lot of stress, right? A lot of stress. So it's like, you know, it's like if you're younger and you're developing and your coach has you doing like sprints, like a professional athlete and workouts, like a professional athlete, but you're five or six or seven or eight or nine or 10, like your body is going to break down. Your body can't handle the load, right? And so what's going to happen is you're going to have a lot of injuries and you're going to have a lot of difficulties. The mind is very similar. So I think part of it is that what it does is it really puts a lot of strain on our developing brain. And so high rates of ADHD, right? Because it's harder to focus and concentrate, build those connections. You know, when our brain breaks down, anxiety, depression, some of those things. So I think that's that's a very reality part of it. The other thing is that it, also, again, creates this culture where we're seeing what other people are doing and it's harder than to focus on our own growth and our own development. And so as we grow and develop, I think a natural part of that developmental process is our identity, our individuation, how we fit into society. I mean, that's all part of the stages of development psychologically. And so when we're focusing on all those other things or those other things are being input into our brain, it limits our ability to grow psychologically and psychosocially. So that's hard because you don't get those stages back. You don't get to go back and redo those stages. And so that's a developmental thing that I think is really impacted. You know, it's harder because, you know, on social media too, I think people present the way that they want to present. And so that makes it difficult, right? because we don't really know. You don't know what reality is, right? We don't. And even as adults, we get caught up in it, right? Like we're like, oh, this person went here. Oh, look at the way they went. How do they get, like we get caught up in all these things, but again, it doesn't give you a true, true sense of what they're like in their day to day. And so it limits the ability to really truly interact with your environment and to be able to have a more authentic experience. So I think those are some limitations or difficulties with it. The reality is it's also part of our experience. And so how do we navigate that and and really understand and be able to use it? The other thing I would say about with mental health with it that's interesting is I think it's created more awareness in a lot of ways. But with that, there's also a risk, right? Because if we're identifying and we're struggling and then we see, oh, that person's struggling or that person's struggling, that person's struggling, there's something very validating about that. But the other thing then it becomes, you know, this expression comes up a lot about it's okay not to be okay. And while that's true, like, why can't it be okay to be great? Why can't it be okay to be exceptional? Like, so we again have like, we lower the bar. We're like, oh, I'm anxious and they're anxious and all these other people are anxious. So like, I'm going to be comfortable being anxious because like, we're all anxious together. But like, why don't we use that as an opportunity to support each other to actually grow? And I think that's the difficult thing is like, it gives a platform to really outwardly vocalize some of these things. And then when you don't have a basis or the appropriate language to understand that, then we're just using words like anxiety or depression. Everybody's experience is different. So we feel like either 
if I'm anxious and they're anxious, then my anxiety is like theirs. Or we feel guilty because we're depressed and we can't get out of bed, but they're saying they're depressed and they look like they're living the time of their lives. So like, what's wrong with me, right? Like, it's a very, very difficult thing. Do you have any recommendations around like kids and the use of social media? Or I mean, or are you just kind of like, that's all the parents to figure out? <laughs> so <laughs> to be fair, I think it is a, it's a parental decision and it's a family decision. And I think, again, it's knowing your kid and helping. But I think when we have open discussions about it and help them understand, like if you're saying to your kids, look, you're not touching this until you're out of the house, explaining to them why, what your concerns are, what you're looking to do, and also kind of helping them facilitate healthy relationships, I think is an important part of that. Even if they are using it, I think a lot of parents too are like, yeah, they're on Snapchat and TikTok and Yik Yak. I don't know what those things are. We'll learn about those things because that's a part of their world. And at least if you can learn about them, you can have healthier discussions and even have them kind of take you through it so that you can better understand. So when they are struggling or somebody's like, yeah, they, I got this snap and now I'm like really upset or like, yeah, they said this about me on, you know, Yik Yak. You're not like, oh, I don't know what that is. Like you kids in your phones these days, like, no, like educate yourself. And like, then you have a context of understanding and you can better support them and how to navigate that versus like, that's the problem with social media or that's it. You're off your phone for a week. You're not getting it because, okay, like, the punishment doesn't really fit the crime there, right? So like, how do we use these as opportunities to truly connect with our kids? Right, again, it's that connection and having that open communication where they can actually tell you about these things. And yeah, you're not just some old fart, <laughs> not listening or not understanding. You can actually be receptive to what they're saying. That's hard sometimes for parents, I think, because you're like, I don't wanna deal with that. I don't wanna do that. But we do need to be a part of what they are dealing with so that we can be there for them when they need us. For sure. Totally. And like you said with the coaches, like if you understand your athlete, you're going to get more out of them. If you understand your kid and what their experiences, you're going to get more out of it. But again, you're going to save yourself a lot more time and heartache. And it's going to be less likely that they put up something that they shouldn't have or somebody took something of them. And then you have a bigger mess to clean up. Right. And then that takes a whole lot more time and effort and really impacts your relationship with your kids. So. For sure. Well, on the kind of relationship topic, like within family dynamics and stuff, a lot of times the role of family can play a big part in, you know, whether it's anxiety in the sport, probably I'm assuming mental health as well. Do you deal with that a lot? Like, is that a harder thing to discover? Because I, I get a lot of people coming to me talking about, you know, being anxious about a meet or I don't feel good about this. And what we discover is it has nothing to do with training, but there are things going on outside of the pool or, you know, the arena or whatever. So how often is that? And, and how can people kind of look, because we, we just see, I have a problem with my sport. We disassociate it from everything else where that stuff really comes in and it's still in our brain and in our heart and it plays a role in what we're doing every day. So how would you, I guess, address that for people who, who might have an issue like that, but aren't recognizing it? Part of it is asking a lot of questions, right? So like, I'll just tell you when somebody comes to me for the very first time, like they may be coming because like I'm having problem. I get in my head when I'm on the diving board. And this is why I'm coming to you. So I start way before that. And I'm like, listen, I want to get to know you as an athlete and as a person, right? And I'll ask questions about family history, mental health stuff. If their parents were athletes, how far they got in their sport, ask about their growth or development, other psychological things, other experience they've had. And then we kind of get to the sport. So I take them down this whole process where I'm really getting, and I say, I want to get to know you as a person, as an athlete, I'm going to ask a lot of different questions and we're going to kind of really get in because they're itching to talk about the reason they're there. They're not going to forget that. But if that's where I start, then I miss all this other potential stuff. So already I may have a, a much clearer idea of what's going on that they don't even understand or realize, but then I can sort of have a sense and again, be able to reflect back and say, so you, you said that you're having trouble going with the diving board, but like this had also happened and this had also happened. And, and do you think that those play a role into it at all? Or is it possible? And so 
you can get a much better understanding and then be able to then sort of break it down. I also think you show them that I care about you as a person, um, not just an athlete. And I think that that allows them to be able to open up more. But even in the conversation of other times, once I'm working with somebody, if something comes up and they're like, yeah, I had a crappy meet, I'm like, tell me what happened. And they'll tell me, well, I didn't make my times or I didn't do this or I didn't do this. And I'm like, so is there anything else that's been going on? Like, well, no, like I had a test and like my mom and I've been fighting and da, 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 da. So then we're able to sort of start to figure out and even put together other pieces that they're like, yeah, but that, that, that had nothing to do with it. And I'm like, no, I'm not saying that it did, but like, it's helpful to understand the context of your environment that it sounds like there were other things going on that also potentially took your emotional energy. And they're like, oh yeah. And I was also, I just had a swimmer come in recently and she had a phenomenal, her high school won the championships for the first time. Their team won for the first time. She had previously made sectionals for the first time after working with me and was like super psyched. Well, she had a meet and didn't do as well. And she said, honestly, what happened? You know, how was, you guys won championships? How was, how's the last couple of weeks? And she's like, well, I, I swam really crappy. And I was like, well, what happened? And she was like, I don't know. I don't know. Like, and I was like, well, tell me what you were thinking. Like, what did you, what did you use the tech? Like, and as we talked, it became very, very evident that she was thinking about the next meet. And so she was like, thought this would be relatively easy and was thinking about the next bigger thing and had totally gotten away from her process. And so when we kind of broke that down, she was like, oh, like, I was totally not even thinking about this. And I was like riding the high of winning my high school championships, thinking about, you know, the next big thing that was coming up and we were able, there wasn't anything else in her environment that happened, but she was so focused on all those other things. And even those successes that you would think would build confidence that it actually overshadowed her getting away from her process. So we were able to kind of break that down and understand that and then be able to like help her come back to that. And then she said, so what do I do to stay in the moment? Because I'm finding myself getting out of it. So we were able to break that down, come up with some strategies, techniques, and you know, we'll see what happens. That's really cool. I just think that's important for people to see. And that was a great example that like, it's not, yeah, necessarily that that affected it, but yet you used your emotional energy or it put your brain somewhere else. Like it can affect you in these different ways that kind of takes you out. I totally agree. Dr. T, I could talk to you all day long about this stuff, because obviously this is my favorite topic and probably yours too, but you have dropped some amazing truth bombs, given us some great advice. Thank you so much. Is there a way we can keep following you online or connect with you in some way? Where should we go? Yeah, for sure. And I, and I encourage everybody to keep following me. I'd love that. So my Instagram is probably the best social media platform to follow me on. So that is at Dr. T underscore sports psych. So it's DR period T and then underscore S P O R T S P S Y C H. My website is mindsettraininginstitute.com. So you can Google Mindset Training Institute or type all those letters. We'll link to it in the show notes too, so they can get right there. Yeah. And then my podcast is the Mindset Experience. And I'm proud that I'm going to have Laura Wilkinson dropping soon as well. So you'll be able to get a chance to hear the other way around. But those are the best ways to get a hold of me or follow me and see what I'm doing. And, um, yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. Appreciate you being here. Absolutely. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show. This allows us to keep bringing on amazing guests, and it also helps other athletes to find this show. Make sure to check out the show notes to follow us on social media and learn more about our awesome guest. To hear all of our amazing episodes, head on over to thepursuitofgold.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Pursuit of Gold is proud to be a Podigy production. That's all for now. Make sure to tune back in next week.